Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day, Lord. Lord, thank you that we're able to come here and learn more about you. Please bless Mr. Pruitt as he speaks his, as he speaks your word to us. Lord, help us to understand and give us wisdom. Help our hearts to be open to your message that you want to share with each individual one of your people in this um, building here today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We have several orders of business we want to accomplish this morning in learning how to study our Bibles. But before we get to those, I want to address a question from Sunday, no, Monday, about hide not, what does it say, hide not thyself from thine own flesh? I want to talk about that. I found when I was looking three passages of Scripture that seemed like they might help us know whether it means... Don't hide yourself from your own skin showing, or don't hide yourself from the needs of your, your kin. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 17. What we're doing is looking at passages that seem to be on the same topic as not hiding yourself from your flesh, to try to see if another prophet said the same idea in a different way that would be more clear, whether it means from your own flesh showing or whether it means from your kin. 1 John 3, and looking at verse 17. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? 1 John 3, 17. In that verse, which does it lean closer to? Hiding yourself from your own skin showing or hiding yourself from the needs of your brother? It looks more like that, doesn't it? That you really aren't helping someone if you see their need and then don't pay any attention to it. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're not going to read the whole passage, but we'll read enough to remind us of the story. Look at verse 30. Luke 10, verse 30. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to... Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now we know the story. Let's look down to verse 36. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves. Does this story seem like a similar idea to not hiding yourself from the need of your neighbor or similar to not hiding yourself from the appearance of your own flesh? Yeah. From your neighbor. Yeah, that's what it looks like to me. It certainly does. It looks like to me that the flesh that shows here isn't the flesh of the kind Samaritan, it's the flesh of the needy man. Isn't that the flesh that shows? 
look at Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 5. Nehemiah 5 and verse 5. It's Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalm. So if you find Psalms, just go back a ways and you'll be there. Nehemiah 5, verse 5. Nehemiah said, Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our, what does it say? Brethren. Brethren. Our children as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already, neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. In, in this verse, the word flesh there, you see how it's used? Yet now our flesh is as the flesh, what does it say? So that when Isaiah says, don't hide yourself from your own flesh, Nehemiah 5.5, 5, does it help us see maybe that it might be referring to someone else's flesh, even though it says your own flesh? Do you all follow <coughs> what I'm saying? So let me conclude what I'm, gonna, what I'm telling you. I don't have proof that Isaiah 58 means what I think it does, but I found three other passages that seem to have the same idea as Isaiah 58 would have if it means don't hide yourself from the needs of others. In other words, be aware and open to helping them in their need. Then that's what I think it means. Because I found other prophets that said the same idea in different ways. Do you see how I came to that conclusion? Yes, sir. That is how you study the Bible you find some other prophet talking about a similar idea, <coughs> says it a different way, and then you have an idea of really probably what the other one means because God shares his same thoughts with several other people. Yesterday I had you read the book of Jonah. I haven't forgotten that, but before we get to that, there's something else. It's starting to wilt because I picked it two hours ago. Let's see. It's backwards to you, isn't it? Is that a why now? No. And then angles, how we usually make our wise. I'm, I'm very impressed with this mullen plant. I don't know, you probably can't see, but someone or some animal or some car hit it and broke it right here. It looked like someone came along and just went like that. Just kind of broke the top off. But instead of it falling off, it just bent over. I'm sure when it happened, it was pointing straight down. But did it kill it? And it didn't have enough strength in its weak spot here to stand it back up because it really, the fibers here were broken. They really were. So what did it do? It did its best to curb as fast as it could. It grew and it turned. And right now it's kind of pointing up this way. But when I found it this morning, before I killed it, I'm sorry. But anyway, um, I brought it, I sacrificed its life for you. It was growing just like this. It was pointing up to the sunshine, very courageously. I'm impressed. Are you impressed by that? Yes. So I think you heard in some talk somewhere, I heard someone mention it. It was last week, it was Brother, I think Midori's husband. Oh. Sliger. Sliger, that's it, all right. Brother Sliger 
shared about how a just man falls seven times, and what does he do? He rises again. Isn't that a beautiful illustration? It just headed back up. Sometimes where we have fallen in the past, we have a real weak area. I'm curious, I'm not going to ask any of you to tell me what it is, but how many of you, young people and older, know what a really weak area in your life is? A place where Satan is trying to get you. How many of you know your weak area? It looks like it's just a little more than half. Listen, every one of you that didn't raise your hand, you ought to try to figure that out. There is some place in your life where the devil has had some success in getting you to trip up there, and you know the devil really doesn't care if he can get you to trip up every time. In fact, if you end up walking most of the time, but he can trip you up every time he brings you to that certain temptation, he has you like, a, like with a hook through your lip. And he can just pull you down anytime he feels like it. What I like about this plant is that though it had a very great weakness and it couldn't change that weakness, it didn't give up going the right direction. There's something else, too. I know this plant did not break under its own weight. That is, this plant did not, it wasn't growing up like this and just thought, I can't hold my head up any longer. I can't do it. I can't. Oh. <laughs> you know, that didn't happen, right? Plants are quite courageous in that respect. Someone knocked it over. I want to say this so gently and so right. I'll do my best. If the devil sees one of you young ladies prospering in your spiritual life, or one of you young men prospering in your spiritual life, he has a little bag of tricks that he will try to use. He'll try to use someone else to... Point you when you're trying to aim higher and grow to distract you to looking down to something down here and one of his biggest tricks I call it the boy girl bag of tricks maybe I could just stop and you'd have the whole sermon figured out before I even said it if I stopped on that topic would you have the whole sermon figured out before I said it how many of you would have the whole sermon figured out before I said it well, it's only a third of them, so I better say it. It'll take me one minute. Listen, when you are trying to aim higher in your spiritual life, young man, the devil will try to distract you to have an interest in a young lady. She doesn't have to be a wicked young lady. She just has to be a young lady that will distract you from aiming higher in your spiritual life. And it's a big trick of his to get you from looking up. If you have wisdom and you fall that way, what should you do? That's it. Just point yourself back up and get yourself on track. Ditto, just replace boy with girl and girl with boy. Understood? Okay. Turn up in your Bibles to Isaiah 58. That was the end of that sermon. Isaiah 58. And I still haven't you have I, I still haven't had you share what you read from Jonah yet. Does anyone did anyone read something in in the little passage of Jonah they'd like to share this morning? Something from yesterday when you read that Jonah three verses what is it five through eight? Did you notice anything? 
in the back. It shows a lot about how Nineveh repented and how they went from being the worst city that you could ever hear of, kind of like Las Vegas, and into this wonderful city that, you know, it's, it's, it's willing to be forgiven. Okay, so Nineveh was worthy of being obliterated, and just a few days later, God spared them. Now, what was it that anyone can raise your hand if you have an answer? What was it that led them to that level of repentance? Was it a parent? Brother in the black. The, re the, um, the realization of their sin. Okay. And, like, it wasn't just the sin, but there is something else. It was the spanking that was coming. Wasn't that what it was? <laughs> I mean, there's something about a potential spanking that has the ability to set some people on a right course. Do you think it's possible that two demerits could set someone on a right course? Yes, possible? It would if they were as wise as, as the men in Nineveh, right? They, what it looks like there is they already had three demerits, right? Is that, what, is that what they had? They had three demerits. They had 40 days before toasty time was coming. And, and how did they respond to that? You know what they could have done? They could have got revenge on God. Couldn't they? Couldn't they have grabbed Jonah and strung him up and tortured him to death? Couldn't they have done that? But if they had done that, would it have benefited them at all? No. Young people, listen to this for a minute. This is my second sermon for this morning. The devil plays such a nasty trick on young people. It works like this. Their parents correct them, and they get revenge on their parents by rebelling against God. But if you get revenge on your parents by rebelling against God, pray tell, who do you hurt? You know, you might be able to hurt Jonah very badly, I mean like your parents. Maybe he could even have died. But that's just the small part of the story. Who would have died? The city of Nineveh, thousands of people. It's just a symbol. When you are corrected, don't get revenge on God for the way people correct you wrongly. Does that make any sense to what I'm saying? In other words, obey God because of what He's like, even if the people that are trying to represent Him don't represent Him well at all. Okay, anything else from the story of the part of Jonah? Before we go on. There's similar thought. Yes. Which is interesting. When they proclaimed the fast, from the richest to the lowest, they were all made equal. They all dressed in sackcloth and ashes. Including the, the king. The king. I was so impressed with the king in that little passage. It is not like kings to humble themselves. Ancient kings are like modern kids. It's not <laughs> you're, it's not like them to humble themselves. But the king of Nineveh escaped judgment because he did what? He humbled himself. He accepted some correction. And when the king humbled himself, what impact did that have on the rest? You know, there are two sort. I'll get to you in just a minute. I think, God willing, I will. There are two sources of influence I'd like you to consider. There are some people 
that because of their popularity or prestige or the, ability, the way they carry themselves, that when they do the right thing, they have a lot of influence. Have you all been together long enough where already there are... Oh, I shouldn't ask you that kind of question. I'll tell you what I was thinking to ask, but I'm not asking. I was thinking to ask you if there's already some young people who already are kind of like the popular folk. But I'm not asking you, right? I'm not asking. <laughs> if there was someone like that, and that person chose to go all the way and do the right thing, would it likely have an impact on others? <laughs> if he or she would humble him or herself, it could have a power to change things for a lot of people. But that is not the only source of powerful influence. There's another source right at the bottom. When someone who is weak and struggling and cast out and unpopular, despite all those setbacks, when he or, sh he or she will take a stand and do the right thing and brave ridicule and problems, that is a source of radiating power that has as much influence as when it comes from the... Did Jonah mention both influences? It did. From the least of them unto the greatest. And so everyone participated in the past. Why did I bring up the story of Jonah? Because Isaiah 58 is about a fast that God is looking for. And isn't it apparent to you from Jonah that that must have been the kind of fast God was looking for? In other words, it worked, right? Follow my logic. Isaiah says, here's a fast that will work. In Jonah, we have a picture of a fast that works. that worked. And so I want to look at Jonah and learn something about the kind of fast that works. It must be a fast that is putting away of sin. But there's a little bit more from Jonah. You're in Isaiah 58, right? Look at verse 6. Is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness. Now, just pause for a minute. When you looked at verse 7, who do you deal the bread to in verse 7? You know, it's not yourself, is it? And who do you bring into your house in verse 7? It's not yourself, is it? And who do you cover with clothes in verse 7? It's not yourself, is it? And all those things that made me begin to wonder about verse 6, was it speaking about breaking my own bands of wickedness or breaking the bands of wickedness in others? Do you understand my question? In the book of Jonah, do you remember what the king said? He didn't just say, let's not eat. What else did he say? What? The country and all the beasts. Okay, yeah, the country, the beasts weren't eat. What else did he say? Not to drink, what else did he say? Let's turn back there, we're forgetting. Finger in Isaiah 58, and let's go to Jonah, chapter 3. And I'm trying to find it. Amos Obadiah. There it is. Jonah, chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 8. This is the king speaking. Did he say that everybody should be in sackcloth and ashes? He said sackcloth and ashes and fasting and no drinking, and I'm even looking for something else. Let's read verse 8 together. I mean, I'll read it out loud. You can just read it. 
But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Listen carefully. Yea, let them turn every one from, what does it say? From his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This fast that worked in the book of Jonah, was it just a fast of not chewing food? It was saying, stop disobeying. Yes. He did. The king set a good example, and he called everyone else to stop sinning. Turn with me now in your, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. This isn't in my notes, so I reserve the right to change the reference if I find out it's not right. But you're getting close to it already. Hebrews chapter 3. Yep, it's right. And verse 12. Hebrews 3, and looking at verse 12. It says, take heed, brethren. I'm sorry, I didn't wait for you to finish turning. Hebrews 3.12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Listen carefully. But exhort one another, what does it say? Daily, Daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of Sin. In this verse, what am I supposed to do for you? You know, every day I'm supposed to encourage you to do the right thing. To break off your sins and to do the right thing. And on what day am I supposed to start according to the verse? Today. So I'm about to discharge my duty. I want you all to do the right thing. Be encouraged and obey God today. Don't fall. Don't listen to the Satan's temptations. Obey what God says and you'll prosper. What I just did is I exhorted you to do the right thing. Now, who are you supposed to exhort to do the right thing? What does it say in the verse? That's it, each other. Exhort each other. I'm suggesting to you that maybe when Isaiah 58 says, break the bounds of wickedness, it's not just referring to your own. It might be referring to what God has said, that we are to encourage one another daily and help others to escape their own bands of wickedness. Yes. But shouldn't we take the plank out of our own eye before we take the dust out of our brother's eye? Yes. This is a good question. Should you, while you're, while you're cherishing a sin, try to correct someone else? Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6 and look at verse 1. Galatians 6. And looking at verse 1. There is a condition to who ought to help people break off their bands of wickedness. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, what are the next four words? Is there a condition to helping someone else? There is. If you have not brought your own life into conformity to what God says, what the sister pointed out is certainly the truth. You're not qualified yet to help someone else. Isn't that simple? But if you have, in the morning time, given your life to God, put away your sins, what does it say? Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. 
considering yourself, lest thou also be tempted. All right. We have two more things to do, and we're running out of time. You know what that can do if you don't do that right, don't you? All right. Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Yesterday I tried to track people down all over the place and give them the notes for these Bible studies. I think I tracked down three quarters of you. If you're in the one quarter that somehow I never found you yesterday and gave you one, on that little table next to my empty bowl of cereal, I mean my empty cereal bowl, um, you will find more copies of the study. The study is about four pages long. Just try to make sure you get one whole set and take it with you. Unless you're just going to throw it away, then don't bother, right? But if you would use it, please take one. Leviticus chapter 16, and we are looking at verse, verse 29. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you, for on that day shall, be, shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. This is talking about the Day of Atonement. So you remember from your Bible study, from your past life, that we're living in the Day of Atonement. What were the people supposed to do during the Day of Atonement? So the priest would kill a lamb, he would put a lamb aside for a scapegoat, but the people would be afflicting their souls. You know, the Bible just really doesn't say in this passage what it means by afflict their souls. Do you think it meant they're going to hit themselves in the back with, with uh, whips? Isaiah 58 is the passage that explains what this verse means. Isaiah 58 talks about people waiting for Christ's second coming, people who are claiming to keep God's commandments, people who are having devotions, and what God is asking them to do isn't to try to look like they're having a terrible life. What he's asking them to do is to become service-oriented, holy people. Let me make this real simple, what it says in early writings. How many of you have read early writings? Can I give you a hint of something to do in your life? I'm going to do it whether you let me or not, so here it comes. The world could have ended in the late 1850s. If the world had ended in the late 1850s, Ellen White would only have written the material for one of her books. And which book would it be? It would be Early Writings. What I conclude from that is if there is one small book that has everything that is positively essential for you to know, it would be the book named... Amen. And did you know it's also a small book? More than that, it's a book that's full of pictures and illustrations and mental drawings. 
so that it's actually a fairly easy book for young people to read. It doesn't have a bunch of like theological difficult stuff, but it's as deep as deep can be. I highly recommend that you read the book, Early Writings. That's the end of that commercial. <laughs> In that book, you'll find that the world is divided up, the church is divided up first into two categories. Both categories are Seventh-day Adventists, but one category are daily searching their hearts to see what other sin is in there that they can put away. That's one category. The other category are looking forward to Christ's coming, but for the most part, they're spending their day just doing the things that they normally do. Except every now and again, they think about Christ's coming. As Ellen White was watching those two pictures, and it's not the boys on one side and girls on the other. It's not that way. As Ellen White was watching this picture, the category that were putting away their sins, she saw evil angels trying to surround them with darkness, but God's angels would drive the darkness away. It's all just a picture, right? And eventually, they were surrounded with God's protection. It represented the seal of God. What happened to this group? They're having fun and enjoying their life. The angels could not succeed in getting through to them and convincing them to live the right way. And the holy angels would eventually turn away from them in sadness. They were surrounded with darkness, and eventually she couldn't see them any longer. What Ellen White saw there is just a picture of the fulfillment of Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 says that the people who will not afflict their souls will be cut off from the congregation. What did that picture mean way back then? It meant that those that would not in our day be putting away their sins would eventually be led out of the church or into judgment. That's not a hard idea to understand. It's an important one. It's part of God's curriculum for today. How many of you have the Bible study set with you that I gave you the notes from yesterday? Can I see your hands? Okay. It's a lot more girls than boys. Or else boys don't raise their hands as much. All right. If you have it, turn, turn in it to the last page and a half. I only have two more days with you, and I know I'm not going to get through everything, but I want to teach you how to use this thing yourself. I'm looking at the two pages that look like outlines, kind of like this. And if you don't have one, and you're sitting beside someone who does, say, can I look at that? And if not, just listen carefully and think, I wish I got one. And then you'll remember to get one afterwards. <laughs> the two pages that look like this, outlines. These are outlines about how to study the Bible. What time is it now? Can someone tell me? Got it. Okay, let's look at how to say the Bible in outline number one. What kind of person to be so God can teach me? A man that is willing to do God's will. We learned that on Monday, right? A man that is wise. We learned that from Daniel 12 on Monday. A man that is single-mindedly believing. Now, we didn't look at that at all, but if you are the kind of person who takes notes, you could write in there James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is the chapter that talks about if you want wisdom, ask of God. You remember that? James 1, 5? But then it says that if you are 
believing God in some things and not in others, that you're double-minded and you don't get anything from God. So if you want God to teach you, you're going to have to choose to believe. <clears throat> we didn't talk about it. You'll have to look it up later. Going to section number two. What to do to be taught of God. Earnestly pray for help in understanding always. You know what I love about Young Disciple magazine? Every time you get it, when you come to deep Bible study, there's a little thing at the top that says something like, the Bible shall never be studied without prayer. You've seen it, right? That's great that it's always there because it's something you... I'll tell you for myself, I don't dare study my Bible without asking God to help me. Because I know the devil is ready to give me assistance if I don't have help from heaven. Do you know the devil regularly misinterprets the Bible for people and sends them off in strange directions? Yeah, we need help. End of sermon, moving to point two. Carefully read the passage in context, perhaps repeatedly. Maybe some of you have, how many of you ever listened to Peter Gregory preach? Some of you have done that. So I don't recommend the same thing he does, but I'll tell you what he recommends, because it's interesting as an illustration. When he's going to preach on a passage, he talks about reading it through the whole book, I think he says seven times. <laughs> well, he, there's no verse that says to do that, but it's not a bad idea. What happens when you read something through repeatedly? You begin to notice things that somehow you missed the first time you were going through it. So we talked about on Sunday or on Monday about noting observations, just changing phrases into little things. We didn't talk about emphasizing words. Let's see if I can help you with a verse like this. Turning your Bibles to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. And we're looking at verse 11. This is one of my favorite promises in the entire Bible. Isaiah 58, 11. Let me just read it to you the first phrase a few times. And the Lord shall guide thee continually. 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 What was I doing when I read that to you those various times? That's right. I was doing it because sometimes when I read a sentence, I don't actually notice one of the words, even though I say it. It just seems to go through and doesn't register. So maybe when I'm re suddenly I realize this says God is going to guide me. But I emphasize thee. Or he's going to guide me how much of the time? It's incredible. Or I'm, I noticed the word guide, and I suddenly realized guide, that means he's in front of me, taking me where I need to go. And suddenly it hits me. Or I realize it's the Lord. It's not some man or someone else that's guiding me. It's God himself. Aren't there a lot of thoughts in that one sentence? By emphasizing various words, allowing each word to have its weight, I can see many of the thoughts that are already in the passage. Look at point three in the outline. I mean, it's item three under number two. Anyway, the next line. Be familiarizing yourself with Scripture. 
Your basic food scene, Rumaneshte. We watched Rumaneshte in Romania in 1996. Is there anyone that almost understood what I just said? <laughs> so, are you Romanian? No. But have you been to Romania? <laughs> what, I, what I said is I speak a little Romanian. I, I learned Romanian in Romania in 1996. And um, learning a new... Okay, I'll try a different question. Have you ever tried to learn a new language? That's more of you? Like Spanish, maybe you're trying to learn right now? When you're trying to learn a new language, I'm trying to learn Koine Greek. There is a point where you've learned a lot of vocabulary rules and quite a bit of vocabulary, but you really can't quite understand a book written in that language. So like you look at a book and you recognize about every third word, is that enough to understand the sentence? No. It's not. In a way, studying scripture is kind of like learning a language. It requires a lot of work before you get to the point where you can just understand what you're reading. But when you're learning a different language like Spanish, there will be some sentences that are so small, como esta, that even with a little bit of Spanish you know, you can understand them. God filled the Bible with things like that. He filled the Bible with little phrases and patches of simple little milk and grass that no matter how young you are in Bible study, when you get to that, you'll understand that part. Wasn't that very kind? But as you're studying longer, you'll become more and more familiar. Anyway, so this principle is keep at it until you get it. Moving on to the next point. I'm going to skip number four because we're talking about that on Friday. Number five, use the best tools. The Bible itself, yes. The concordance. Now, that next line where it says, not for etymology, that's probably a word you don't know. Etymology means the history of words. Like the word beautiful, it's an English word. You know who invented the word beautiful? It was Tyndale, the first guy to do a good translation of the Bible into English. Wycliffe made one before him, but it wasn't the best. Tyndale did a better one. But Tyndale kept having these problems. He would come to a beautiful word in Greek, and the new English language that he was working with was, had a small number of words, and he just couldn't find a word that he needed, so he would just make one up. You know, he made up justification. He made up the word beautiful. And if, if he made up a lot of the words that we use every day just because he needed to to make the translation. What I just taught you about was a little bit of etymology, the history of words. Unfortunately for you, concordances often have etymology. They'll show you, here's the word, and it came from this word, and that came from that word, and that came from that word. The best thing you can do is ignore it. Because it's not so that just because a word came from another one that they have similar meaning. Did you know that the word God and the word good have the same root in the Anglo-Saxon background? But it's not important. And there was no reason for me to tell you that at all. Etymology is not a helpful tool in Bible study. It's worse than not helpful. It very much confuses people when they try to use it. And then I said, how what time is it now? I see people getting ready to go. Do I end at 50?
Okay. Where it says, not for translation correction. I want to preach on this for one whole minute. This Bible was translated by a great big bunch of people that really knew their stuff and were consecrated. Then here comes Joe Blow, Bible student. He gets out his concordance dictionary. He looks up one of the words and finds out oh, they put the wrong word in. Because the concordance tells him what it really means. That's not a good way to study the Bible. The fact of the matter is that words often have very many meanings. And who knows which meaning to use? The man who really knows the language is the one who can decide which meaning fits best in that verse. Do we really know the languages? And we just sort of pick the one we like, and we can just really mess things up. I really think you will find out you'll do better in Bible study if you don't try to use the concordance for a correction of translation. Yeah, that was a whole sermon. We've already talked about treasury scripture knowledge, cross-references. You see point E there where it says brethren of experience? The fact of the matter is that God never wanted any of us to become independent Adams. So sometimes when he wants to teach me something, he actually gives it to you. That is, he teaches you. Why does he teach you and he wants to teach me? Because he'd like us to have spiritual interaction. Instead of just talking about the weather and sports, to be talking about godly things. So yeah, Brother of Experience, that's a great resource for learning. Look down to number eight. Find inspired commentary on the context. If you're trying to find a commentary on the Old Testament, where's a great place to look? The New Testament explains so many things that are hard to understand in the Old Testament, especially those prophecies about the Jews and Judea and Israel and Jerusalem and uh, it's just so complex and Romans helps. And then the spirit of prophecy about the Bible. But don't skip to 8b before you've done your own research because God won't help you if you try to use the spirit of prophecy, Ellen White's writings, as a substitute for digging in the Bible. That would be if God helped you that way, you know what it would be like? It would be like if Ted Everett, with his little boy Caleb, every time he saw him try to walk, he picked him up and took him like this because he could go faster. Would that get Caleb where he needed to go faster? No. no. Caleb might get there faster, but what would happen to Caleb? His legs would get weak. He would become a spoiled brat. And wouldn't that happen? Do you think God wants to spoil you? He gave us minds to study and research. And if every time we wanted to know what was true, he just would go and put the thought in our minds, what would happen to our minds and our research? They'd get weak and lazy and we would become spoiled little spiritual brats. God doesn't do it. If you want to know it's true, you're going to have to do research. I can't wait till tomorrow because I'm only one third done. All right. Let's have a closing prayer, and we'll be done for today. Our Father in heaven, I ask for your own purpose, that you would find a way to use your Holy Bible to teach us, that you would save us from those common 
falls that have distracted others from truth. And if already we've been bent at a point of weakness, I ask that she would help us to imitate that flower and to rise back up and to point towards you. I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen.